Welcome to the International Civil Society Center's Future and Innovation Podcast. I'm Nihal Helmi, Knowledge and Communities Manager here at the Center. Our Global Perspectives 2021 hybrid experience was as exciting and inspiring as you'd expect. We gave our communities the opportunity once again to immerse themselves in themes and workshops, designing common strategies to address key trends, challenges, and opportunities of shifting power. We have created these episodes to bring you some of the conversations and panels we experienced during the conference. We hope you find them as insightful and valuable as we did. And now I'm moving to our East Africa hub to Nairobi. My name is uh, John Kitui, the country director with Oxfam here in Kenya. And I would like to take this opportunity to welcome all of you to this conversation around decolonization and shifting the power. So I take this opportunity to just probably introduce myself and then allow also my colleagues to introduce themselves and then say what you're doing to decolonize aid as it is, as, as an organization, what are you doing as, 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 as part of this conversation around shifting the power or engaging new powers? Ladies first, get deep into it. Thank you. Thank you very much. I should say greetings to everyone because I'm not certain uh, how many countries I'm actually greeting right now. My name is Stella Agara. I am wearing a black uh, dress with a black and white floral skirt. Speaking from the iHub in Nairobi, Kenya, and I'm here representing the ULEAD Africa, which is the premier uh, youth leadership development organization for East Africa and has just gone continental um, this year. Part of the work that we are doing in uh, uh, decolonizing aid and, and, and power shifts is um, one, as an organization, changing our practice and, and uh, prioritizing exactly what we want to do only partnering with development partners who fit within uh, our strategic objectives, rejecting funding from partners who uh, demand that we go in directions that are not fitting within the priorities we have identified through empirical evidence and research. And the last thing that we are doing is engaging in conversations with nascent organizations who are, are some of them are our alumni or members of our organization to make sure that we support them to be able to access resources for, uh, from development partners if they do not have sufficient structures to be able to access these resources themselves, either because of their systems, you know, accounting systems or, or just the, the, the state of their organizations at the time they need funding for, for solutions. We are promoting uh, people-driven solutions, youth-driven solutions, and we, we try as much as possible to ensure that then the ideas that we are supporting are actually ideas coming from young people. I'll stop there. Okay, thank you very much. Maybe before we move on to IHA, what are some of the challenges you are facing as an organization towards realizing that, that dream of more self-reliance, more having the ability to drive the strategy by yourselves without it being dictated from, from external forces? I think to answer that question, I probably want to begin from what our philosophy is. Um, and basically for us, before we even talk about decolonizing aid, for us, our belief is that we should not actually be engaging in this business of receiving aid from anybody. The reason why this is extremely important for us is because we have a very clear understanding of what has brought this continent of Africa to the situation that it is right now. I should have mentioned in my introduction that I happen to be a tax justice activist, not just any type of tax justice activist, but an award-winning tax justice activist. And part of the work that 
that I have been doing for a long time is studying the environment of our taxation environment and how resources are actually distributed across the globe between the, the very rich countries and the poor countries. As it is, the record shows that at least at a minimum for every dollar we receive in the form of aid, we lose three in the form of tax evasion. So Africa is a net donor. If, if only we were not losing the resources that we are supposed to be having for development, we would actually be having those resources and running our businesses here. So at, at ULEAD and, and as an organization, as a program, we are promoting fair trade, we are promoting equality in, in, in trade, we are promoting business, we are promoting investment more than you're promoting aid. But having said that, this is not happening in a vacuum. And one of, one of the struggles that, that, that we face is that some of the resources we need are still in the hands of, of those donors who probably haven't reformed, are still in the hands of partners who still think they can come and load of our organizations in Africa and decide for them what is important. And so in terms of, of getting those things done, because we can't keep those ambitions waiting, one of the struggles we have is, is actually sometimes having to compromise where it is possible uh, to be able to access those resources and run those programs. The flip side is that sometimes we don't get sufficient resources for those activities because then when, when, when you're getting dictates here and there, it, it basically means that you have to also consider some of the priorities that are coming from outside to get what you need to run your programs. Number two is the situation where sometimes we find ourselves completely at loggerheads with some partners. Uh, we find ourselves in a place where we have to say, you know what, keep your money. And of course, we as an organization having said that does not mean that everyone else is in agreement with us. So we have organizations that then come out and say, we are going to accept your money. So we lose and some other organizations benefit. Of course, they don't go to do to, to engage in, a, in, in solutions that will help Africa. And of course, they're digging us deeper into a problem that I think uh, Dambis Moyo has been able to very eloquently expressed in her book on dead aid and a problem that we continue to find ourselves in a civil society organization. The last one, Kitui, has got to do with the fact that we have very slow progress in terms of, of the project that we're trying to run. And I'll give an example of one of our peer accountability programs where we have been trying to get resources to demand account, for young people to demand accountability from policymakers. And we just cannot find a partner who's willing to commit sufficient resources for this conversation to take place. Of course, if I give you the dynamics that are limiting these resources from coming to us, you will understand that some of them has got to do with the fact that some donors are in bed with our governments and therefore will not allow themselves to fund a program where we demand accountability. Others have got to do with the fact that nobody wants to dirty their hands just before an election, for example, in a country like Kenya. We have been in similar situations with Tanzania. I mean, Uganda earlier this year in January and Tanzania last year when they were having the election, we all know the dynamics that were around those elections. ULEAD has been working in the whole of East Africa and now is working in Africa. And so even those affect whether or not, you know, we are able to receive sufficient resources for the kind of work we want to do. So in terms of, of decolonization, one of the struggles that we have, actually I should call it the biggest struggle we have, is that the, the colonization agenda is still having a hard grip on, on the programs that we are supposed to be running in Africa and is promoting patriarchy in ways that we should be very scared of. That even as organizations, as we say, we are promoting programs for gender equity, gender equality, we are promoting the inclusions of all groups. These programs seem to be uh, pushing for more inequality than they are um, uh, for equality. Thank you very much, uh, Stella. You raised very good points that we'll come back to um, in a few. So I'd like to hand over to Tim, because I think of the role of technology, both as a colonizing 
technology also as, a, as an opportunity. And I know the IHUB has made efforts to engage with the civil society a bit. It would be nice to hear from you as well, uh, where you see the shifts in power, where you see the colonization happening, where you see decolonization happening, and the space of technology in, in helping to advance the cause that we are on. Thank you. Thank you, John. As you've heard, my name is Tim Daguri. I'm in a gray shirt and I'm seated on the left of, of Stella. So maybe let me just start by saying what we do as an organization. IHUB is part of the greater co-creation hub and we have a presence across Africa in Lagos, uh, here in Nairobi, uh, where we are at, at the IHUB and uh, the design lab in Kigali. But our footprint really goes across where we have work that we're doing in Namibia, in the Central African Republic, in the DRC, in Angola, in Ghana. So we are truly Pan-African company, but we're not a civil society organization in the typical sense. We are an innovation and technology hub. And particularly the, the unit that, that I represent here today is called the technology and society practice. And so we've just transitioned from what before we were calling the governance and digital security practice. And really it was just us refocusing our gaze and saying, let's explore the opportunities and, and threats that pose to the African society when it comes to, to technology. And really, I think the whole thesis, um, just to go back to John's question, is that we are coming from a place where we recognize that tech plays a huge, huge role as an empowerment tool. And being able to then pass on that knowledge and transfer it to our own people and come up with solutions that really are for Africans and by Africans. And recognizing that the power lies within us um, we have the skill set, we have the local context, we, 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 it's, it's something that we can be able to do and then even ensuring that wherever it is that we go to, we're able to raise these grassroots leaders. So just to then talk about specifically um, when it comes to decolonization of, of aid, one, there's the point of made where we recognize that technology really is an empowerment tool, so there's that. And then secondly for us, we rather than say that we don't accept um, funds, we just say that, look, we de-emphasize funding. And this means that for us, it's not about the, the funding that we get, but the works. And there have been, there've been very many instances where we start to do a project and then a funder will come and, and, and join us later and say, okay, we think that the work that you guys are doing is important and would like to support. And then even when they're su supporting, it's on our own terms. Um, so we have agency of our work, our programs, and for us, like I mentioned, it's, it's that coming from the point of that the solutions lie with, with us. I think I would, I would also just like you to speak a bit onto the role of technology. What do you think technology can do to decolonize aid in itself? So, for example, I think we talk about human rights and what the role of technology can do that so that human rights is actually driven from the continent as opposed to necessarily externally. Where do you see the role of, of, of digital technology or ICT for that matter in trying to empower our own solutions as opposed to external solutions. With technology, the beauty about it is, for instance, this conversation is being really made possible because of tech. And then secondly, technology is a huge, huge catalyst when it comes for knowledge and information transfer. And life now is, is lived online. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we did see instances of, because of um, how we were living our lives, there was a lot of those, I mean, Africans were exposed to, to lots of threats. And so the work that we are doing is right now, at least at the moment, is being, is, is just building the capacity of a lot of um, civil society organizations and truly grassroots um, level um, organizations and human rights defenders, etc. Um, so 
when I think about the role of technology in decolonization, decolonizing aid, I think for me, it's that information and access is able to be democratized in that sense, yeah. Okay, thank you very much, everyone. So I would like to take this opportunity to just share a bit about Oxfam's work as well in terms of decolonization of aid. Maybe a bit of background from where we come from. So for a very long time, uh, we've acknowledged that most of the humanitarian response mainly was driven from the north. Um, and there have been a lot of conversations globally about making sure that humanitarian response is locally driven because it evidence shows it's more efficient, uh, it's more timely as well, but it's also very informed because it's the local actors who know best, uh, who know best the context. As Oxfam, some of the practical things we've done over the past 10 years is, uh, first of all, is to move away from direct implementation to work with local actors. So these are local civil society organizations, it could be, for example, in Kenya, at the county level, or at the national level. And so we've had, for example, in Kenya to actually close uh, field offices to allow for that space for local actors to, to take more leadership um, uh, to, that, uh, to that effect. Also, we, we've tried to promote and to implement ourselves the Charter for Change uh, agreement that has been negotiated. Uh, for example, a commitment to make sure that 25% of all humanitarian aid goes to local actors. Uh, as Oxfam, most of our numbers have shown that we've gone above that, and especially where we've moved away from direct implementation. Most of the funds that would go to implementation has gone to uh, to local to local actors. We've been champions of local humanitarian leadership, and I think it goes beyond just local humanitarian leadership in the spaces we are in as, as, a, as a confederation. We've tried to make sure that we use our brand, we use our financial resources that we have in a very humble way as opposed to in a very patriarchal way. And in the humble way, it means that we do not dictate so much or we do not dictate so much on what partners at the local, at the local level do. And we expect them to be more on the driving seat. They are more informing us. And we as Oxfam are more accompaniers and facilitators of, of local actors uh, than ourselves. Most of the problems that we face go beyond local boundaries and go beyond national boundaries. And as a confederation, one of the things that we are very particular on is to make sure that we use our spaces at the global level in the spaces that we are in to amplify the voices of local actors. So for example, with the simple issues like the climate change, we know that climate change, there's been a huge conversation from the Paris COP21. Uh, we have the Glasgow conversation coming up very soon as well. The people who suffer the greatest impact on climate change are actually people from, from the countries we are from, the South. But then our global, uh, as a global network, we are able to, to use those spaces, access to the G7, access to the COP at the Glasgow as well to amplify the voices of, of, of actors uh, in the South. I think in terms of challenges, so there are, it's, it's learning with challenges. I think when you talk about decolonization, decolonization of aid, and one of them is what are we decolonizing from? And sometimes even the concept of just decolonization is not very, very clear. And maybe it's, it's probably a, it's a wrong term and we need to re redefine it, uh, redefine it as well. And sometimes there is always the elite capture of the whole colonization as well. Because when you talk about the colonization of humanitarian response, for example, we want that the response is locally driven. It's, it's driven by people really and the communities themselves, community-based organizations, community women groups, for example, community youths, uh, example, and the ability for them to have those resources to be able to do that. But the more local you also go, there's always the risk of elite capture and how do we mitigate against that uh, elite capture as well so that you're shifting from old colonial powers to new colonial powers at, at, at the ground. And I think for me, the biggest challenge going forward is to be able to define 
the roles for all actors in all those spaces, because I believe that even as INGOs, there is a space for us to continue to be in. I know Stella mentioned that I think we shouldn't be getting aid at all, but I think for me, it's not there yet. There are problems that I think we require the private sector to do their bit, like economic development and innovation and creation of jobs. There are bits that we expect governments to do their job, like provision of public services, whether it's health, education, uh, social, pro uh, social protection, including humanitarian response, and governments should be able to do that. But then there are things that I think only civil society can do, and that can only come through aid. Things like anti-corruption. We know that the private sector continues to be one of the drivers of, of anti-corruption. We know that governments also, for example, in Kenya, we are laden with a lot of diversion of, of public funds. Only civil society can continue to champion accountability and transparency for, govern, for governments. We also have the human rights defenders. So we know the agitation for good governance, uh, free and fair elections, for example, on the continent, that can only be led by civil society. And I think for me to that front, there's still a place for aid uh, and continued aid and continued global solidarity actually with resources probably coming from outside the countries to continue to support and to defend the human rights defenders in the country. And I think that's for me where I differ a bit with, with, with Stella, but I would be very happy to hear for her in a world where there was no aid, how we would go about doing human rights, how supporting human rights defenders who, who cry for for, for anti-corruption and good governance and transparency, people who champions against illicit financial flows from the continent to the West, uh, people who champion women's rights, uh, whether it's two-thirds uh, gender majority that's actually actualized in, 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 in private and also in government uh, boards on leadership. I would, I would be very interested to hear in a world where there was no aid at all, how that would be would be realized. Thank you, uh, John. And, and, and I'm glad that you're pushing back even on the proposals that I'm making, because one of the biggest proposals I'm making today is for all organizations to push back on donor demands uh, from them and actually push for uh, people-driven solutions. But even as I say that, let me answer your question directly. The question we should be asking ourselves is, do we want to solve the problem? Do we truly want to solve the problem that, that we are facing? If you're talking about human rights defenders, if you're talking about tax injustices, do we want to solve the problem or do we want to look like we're solving the problem? If we want to solve the problem, then we must go to the root cause of the problem. And going to the root cause of the problem for tax justice, for example, would be promoting an agenda that would drive domestic resource mobilization, that will fund progressive public services to citizens, that will ensure that we have thriving economies in Africa so that we are not begging anybody for aid in the first place. Human rights defenders come out to defend the interests of people in the society who are not enjoying their human rights. But if there are resources, sufficient resources to ensure that everybody is living a dignified life, human rights defenders would very quickly run out of jobs. Of course, that's a very ideal world. So there's a lot of work that we need to do, even under the circumstances that we are in. But the question I'll ask you, John, is this. Are there NGOs in, say, Europe? Are there NGOs in, in America? Do, are we the ones who are giving them aid? They get funds from their taxpayers. The reason why they get funds from the taxpayers is because their system is working to be able to give sufficient resources so that even their governments can invest in NGOs within their spaces and then invest in NGOs in, in, in our region of the world. I am so happy to see my friend uh, Suba Chachil in the room because he's doing a lot of work on public uh, benefits organizations and how we can get NGOs in Africa, we are a long way from there, but how we can get NGOs in Africa to begin benefiting from resources actually from the public coffers to run 
programs that should and must be run by NGOs, you know? Some of the work that all the organizations represented on this panel are doing must be done by NGOs because governments may not necessarily be able to have the kind of access, for example, that we have to the community. So for me, an ideal world where there's no aid is a world where we, our, our, our economies are working, our development models are defined by indices that actually reflect on the, the lived experiences of citizens. And number three, where those resources are actually generated from our economy so that we are not being controlled by an external force and we are, we are actually enjoying those resources internally. The reason why I'm saying this is because we lose about 67% of our revenue through tax avoidance. That is a lot, a lot of resources. We lose another 15% to corruption. If we can put, uh, sort out all that and those resources that are available in government, we'll be funding our own political parties We'll even be able to tell them now not to go and look for resources from individuals so that we can have better elections. We'll be funding our own programs locally and we'll not be begging anyone to give us money to solve problems that we understand very well. Number three, we shall be independent from the, the colonial interest. And I like that you have actually very carefully addressed what the problem with colonization is. That the remnants of colonization continue to hold us captive until today. That even when we get funding from our colonizers, for example, if we get funding from the United Kingdom, it's pegged to a very, you know, dark past, a very unfair or an equal kind of relationship that we've had in the past, irrespective of how good it looks. I'm proud of, of I, I, uh, international CSOs like uh, Oxfam, who have managed to, to at least redefine their, their, their practice in terms of how they engage with, with, with partners. They happen to be one of, of my best partners at, at ULEAD Africa, because mostly when they come in, they're coming in to support my work and we have a very symbiotic relationship. They, they fund our programs, we support their own programs and we check that our strategies are aligned. Are we able to push other INGOs to begin operating in the same way? Are we able to push them to begin prioritizing supporting local organizations, even shutting down their local offices so that they're building the capacity of, of, of community-driven initiatives, social enterprises to begin solving the problems that their communities are facing so that we stop this dependency on aid someday and I'm, I'm very optimistic, but for now to begin pro providing solutions that actually speak to the interests of the, of, the, of the community and not the interests of a colonizer, not the interests of capitalists, not the interests of neoliberalism that continues to assume that this entire world is a huge marketplace where you practice your democracy by buying. And yet we have groups who are disadvantaged in terms of buying power, like women, like youth, like people with disability. I honestly think it's time we rethink the entire uh, uh, framework. And even if you're going to continue with aid, let us have the aid in a manner that dignifies the people we are claiming to be providing aid to. Thank you very much, Stella, and very provocative um, points there. And I really appreciate some of the uh, conversations you're saying. And I completely agree. I think we need to get to a point where civil societies, let me just call it in the global south, I don't like that name, but let's just say like that, they are funded by governments. The only problem I have with that, and I think we see even that in the UK, that the governments pass laws that say, if we are giving you funding, you can't lobby against us. And you sign that into contract, that if we are paying you as, uh, as, as an organization, you can't lobby against us. And so you can't lobby against human rights, you can't lobby against tax evasion, you can't lobby against uh, illicit financial flaws, you can't speak about Pandora, 
structures hidden elsewhere. You can't lobby against government if you're funded by, by government. Uh, maybe we need to also look at the funding from local supporters, you know, like Kenyans just supporting local civil society. Because they also say when you look at most of the struggles, power can never be given. And one of my major disappointments with decolonization is that the, sometimes I feel like we are driving it as INGOs. There is a plenty of, uh, I don't want to name any, but I try to struggle to see so many local organizations rising up and say, we want to claim our space. We want to decolonize this space and just say no to INGOs when they are colonial or say, we are going to take your funds, but we don't want you to impose some of these things. You know, look at the contracts and say, we don't want that clause, remove that clause, remove that clause. At what point do we see local actors, national organizations, Southern organizations rise up to claim the space as opposed to sit back and wait for that power to shift or to be given to them. And when you talk about power, I think when you talk about power, most of the time you talk about financial power. So when I, when I look at Oxfam's vis-a-vis -vis some of our local partners, really what, what, what we hold as what would be power, an asset we hold that they probably do not have is probably the plenty of resources we have. But then when we, we come to some of the power that really matters, they have more of it than we do as Oxfam. When you talk about local knowledge and knowledge power, I think our local actors working, for example, in the Asal and semi-arid lands, they have more knowledge on the local context, the reality, the resilience challenges, the humanitarian challenges, the accountability challenges, the transparent challenges that we do. And so they, they should probably exercise that power more. When you talk about the voice and agency, I think local actors have also the, the, the spaces to air, especially with digital technology, actually, with the spaces you can tweet, you can raise your brand, you can show what you're doing with communities. My challenge is why aren't local organizations standing up to take the power and exercise the power they have from a knowledge perspective, resource perspective, the voice perspective, positional power. They have positions to demand. You know, why do they sit and I always feel like maybe they are waiting for INGOs to give power to them. Why don't they rise up and exercise the power they have and take the one that INGOs have for that matter? I think we, you ask a very important question. I'm glad you're asking it. And I'm so happy that the conversation has gone in this direction because it would be pretentious for us to sit here and, and act like it's only the donors who have a problem. We also have a fundamental problem. We, we, the first answer to your question is greed. That some, many people get into this sector, especially civil society sector, because they're coming in to make money for themselves. And they think there's easy money to eat. And they basically think they can eat on the problems of, of society. And you see, when that happens, you cannot expect a person who's, who's coming to eat to fill their tummy to have principles about what money they will accept. They will take money from anybody and they will take money from the person with the least requirements in terms of accountability. So, so for me, that is the first problem. The second problem is the fact that many... Um, NGOs do not have resources at the beginning and they refuse to start small. We all want to look grand, we all want to have a big name. And so when we start off, and I like the fact that Tim was saying, talking about the idea of starting with your small idea, doing exactly what you have found to be the solution. Let money catch you along the way. And when they come in, you tell them, this is what we plan to do. If you're not interested in doing this, then please, we don't want your money, you know? So, so number two is the ability to be able to actually engage in, in empirical research to identify what the real problems are and the real solutions are and then ensuring that you start small as you look for resources or look for not resources actually for partners because when you get a partner they now invest in what you're doing and they don't start suggesting to you what you should do number number three for me 
has got to do with the poverty situation in the continent. And this takes us back to where you started from, that all the nice things I'm saying are a wish list, but this is not happening in a vacuum. It's happening in a space where there's poverty. It's happening in a place where people need to go home and eat after they have made noise about open government, after they've made noise about human rights, after they've made noise about climate justice. And so for me, that's that's really a critical issue that we must address. And part of the reason why ULEAD has streams of work under youth in politics, but also has streams of work under youth and economic development and actually putting money in the hands of young people is to ensure that when we call them out now to come and start making noise about government, they are no longer looking for handouts because they have their own money in their pockets. They're looking for systems that work to promote their cross-border businesses, to promote their businesses, to provide a conducive environment for their businesses to thrive. You know, They're looking for peaceful environments. So, so putting money in the hands of individuals, and this is not a role that CSOs can play on their own. Governments must also throw their weight on this because then we would be able to enable all constituencies to actually engage in solutions that solve their problems and not just any kind. But there's something else, John. In terms of writing, in terms of documenting, and this is where I think Tim comes in, in, in terms of documenting, we should be able to document the truth irrespective of whether the money wants to go in the direction we want to go to or not. I like what is happening with climate justice. I like what is happening with, for example, books like The Big Conservation Lie that has just come out to expose you know, what, I don't, I don't know what name to call them because that book hasn't called them many polite names, but conservationists from the, from, from the global north have come to pretend to be solving the climate, you know, uh, change, uh, um, justice issues in, in, the, in the continent, when indeed they are coming to take up the best resources of the continent and enjoy, enjoy them for themselves. I like that writing, whether it is blogging, whether it is vlogging, where young people have a lot of advantage because they understand the technology, uh, whether it is development of documentaries is beginning to expose community solutions, is beginning to expose the indigenous roles of citizens in solving the problems that our, that our continent is facing, is beginning to expose the role of women, that women have been seed banks for since eternity in Africa, and yet, those solutions have not been exposed. I think in terms of writing, I think in terms of vocalizing, we already have room, we have the numbers, and we have an opportunity to keep on telling this, this uh, uh, development partners that you know what, for as long as you're insisting on your solutions, you're not solving the problems that we, we, we are dealing with. Thank you very much, Stella. Tim, you've been patiently listening, and I think we, I really wanted to engage Stella because I think she should highlight some of these issues and challenges. I, I think for me, what would IHUB have to offer and its partners have to offer to address some of these solutions? Um, I think we've talked about fundraising locally so that local organizations and local actors have enough resources that they do not dance to the tune of their colonial masters, if I, if I may use that word, that they have enough space to build their brand identity using ICT, for example, that they have enough space, as Stella says, to voice and speak up whether the conference is happening in Glasgow on climate change, that the voices reach there without any intermediary, including INGOs like Oxfam ourselves, where they can directly engage in those spaces of shaping the global agenda. So I think, yeah, to be, to be interesting to hear what, what, what you think some of those solutions of, of empowerment and decolonization could be. Thank you, John. And there's something that just crossed my mind as I was listening to Stella. And in the technology space, we've seen instances of different startups um, going the crowdfunding way. And I think one of the things for me, at least uh, being in this panel, just to even really find out what can we do being in the tech space and supporting CSOs. You know, I, I don't, could, 
could could then uh, community organizations CSOs could they go the crowdsourcing way? I don't know if that's something that could work. It's, I I think it's worth considering or, or or mooting and really going as you're saying, going back to the citizens and and the locals to really then raise money for whatever cause it is. We're the ones who are affected. Uh, anyway, but. As I have specifically, um, I can talk about some of at least the, the, the things that we've been doing, supporting uh, CSOs and human rights defenders, investigative uh, journalists, and other at-risk organizations. So one is, and I was telling John this earlier, is we really want to then, because like I mentioned, we're not a typical CSO or a CSO even at all, but we want to bridge that gap between civil society and the tech space. Because we do believe, like I mentioned, that technology can solve a lot of those solutions. So one of the things that we did is, um, of course, realizing that a lot of these fights are now being fought in the in the, I mean, online. So one then providing uh, digital skills training for civil society organizations, human rights defenders, activists. Earlier this year, we worked with activists working in the um, working with persons with disability, and even. Uh, online and digital advocacy skills. We are now also recognizing that the online space is also what is being used to fight a lot of um, civil society actors across the continent. So we, in addition to doing the training in the different countries with local partners, with grassroots leaders, we are setting up a security command center because we've had lots of instances of actual cybersecurity cybersecurity attacks on different um, civil society organizations. So supporting them in that sense. And I guess if I'm allowed, I'd be able to share a helpline that we have that you could just contact us and we give um, that support. And we are also building one of our focus areas in technology and society is research. So we really want to, and like I mentioned already, I think that information gap is a huge part of decolonizing aid. Um, so just build our own body of knowledge from the continent, from our own experiences, and then sharing that with uh, civil society organizations. Of course, leveraging technology to, to, to do that. And yeah. Thank you very much, Tim. And I think you're moving us to, as, I think we have about 10 minutes to go. And I think I want us to move to asks we are making of, of, of those who are listening to us, whether it's Donors, INGOs, uh, local civil society, whichever actor, ICT companies, private sector, uh, citizens, ordinary citizens, some of the asks you want to, to make to move this conversation forward. Um, I think the frustrations within the sector, especially among the local actors, is that decolonization, why are we still talking about decolonization so many decades later? Like we've talked about this so many times, it, it doesn't seem to be happening. Uh, this, the charter for change, how many organizations are even passing 25%? Or 25% is very little actually, but how many are just passing 25% of their funding to, of humanitarian funding to local actors? And why is it taking so long? So I think for me, it would be just nice to go forward and, and, and make a few asks. Um, and then we can, we can interrogate each other's asks a bit before we, we take the break. And I think for me, probably the, the key assumption that underlies my ask is this, the social justice imperative we have is massive. The economic justice imperative we have is massive. The climate justice imperative we have is massive. When you look at whether you talk about women's rights, uh, economic rights, uh, living with dignity, rights in humanitarian settings, whether it's for women or girls, for anyone affected, it's massive. And we, want, uh, we require as many hands on the deck as possible. 
including local organization, local actors, uh, be it civil society or government, we require national actors, we also require international actors. I think for me, there is space for everybody to be there. There is plenty of problems in this world that we have to address from a justice perspective. Having said that, we have to do it differently and we have to do it in a way that we are more equal than we have been before. All actors, whether you're a local actor, national actor, INGO, um, we, are, we, are, we are all equal. And so my ask, first of all, is to fellow INGOs, I think we have, to, we have to sign up to the Charter for Change and it's too late. We need to move with speed to make sure that we are actually realizing those commitments in a very accountable way and be very transparent about how we are, we are meeting those commitments. And really be humble with the assets we have. And I think for me, we have to see that the asset we have, which is usually a lot of financial resources, maybe our brand and identity, maybe it's our global, our globalness, regardless of where we are headquartered, whether in the north, in the south, it doesn't really matter. As long as you and I enjoy, you have plenty of offices across the world. You have those assets in trust of the sector or in trust of local actors and just being humble with those resources that we, we control. But I think the only way to really meaningfully move forward is to look at the charter for change, sign up to it, and then move forward to deliver it. The second ask is for local actors. Um, and I think for me, local actors need to be a bit more bold in exercising the powers they have. Uh, we should shift from the conversation of looking at shifting the power. There's no power that's being shifted. Maybe there is some money to move around to the south than it has been before in the past, but there's plenty of power that can be exercised. And I think as Tim has mentioned, there's plenty of opportunities to build our brand and identity, to engage donors uh, using digital technologies, to raise resources domestically so that we have some sense of autonomy and we are not desperately dependent on, on, on organizations that are a bit colonial and not very humble with the power they bring in. So I think for me, that will be two asks. It, it, both with the donors as well, I think they need to really shift most of the resources and demand that most of these resources flow to the front line, even as we watch out for likely elite capture, whether it's at national level or local level, so that actually we still have aid diversion. It's just that it's not happening at the, the bigger picture level, but it's happening more local and it's not reaching really the communities that we want to, to reach. I'd give you also maybe a, a, a minute or two to air your ask, and then maybe we'll have one minute to, if there is anything we disagree with, we want to challenge from what I've said, over to you, Stella. Let me start with the ones I want to, the asks I have for the for the digital teams and, and maybe this is because I'll hope that team would address maybe how they can support organizations on the same. One of them is showcasing some of the indigenous solutions, some of the people-driven solutions that are being run by, by, by different um, um, uh, local organizations so that then they can profile some of that work and get them uh, um, access to, to resources. They must, as a matter of urgency, participate in proliferating messages for decolonization of aid on adding voice to the campaign to decolonize aid and to ensure that then we are prioritizing solutions by communities and not solutions coming from a source or a, a desk that is far away from where the problem actually exists. Uh, supporting CSOs in, in alternative funding, I think this is an amazing idea. Honestly, I don't even know how it would work, but I think uh, there's room to just think through how or what kind of capacity you'd be able to build for CSOs to engage in crowdfunding, how they can be able to break borders in accessing resources for crowdfunding. And I know definitely my organization would benefit from that kind of capacity, especially because we have attempted crowdfunding. Uh, two years ago before our summit, we attempted crowdfunding and we were very disappointed because even we did not contribute to, to the fund. So maybe maybe taking us through uh, you know, that kind of process would help us understand what 
my individual contribution to that fund means uh, how I can convince other people to, to contribute to that fund and that kind of thing. I like the idea of a security command center and, and, and assisting organizations in ensuring that then they remain safe as they share their material, their pictures, their, you know, their intellectual property online. Uh, to international CSOs, I think uh, Kitui has done a good job of doing you know, what my asks for, from them would be. The only other one that I would add onto that list is to push back. The same way that you have access to negotiation tables where you actually get to, to even access more funds than, than local uh, organizations, uh, use that opportunity to actually negotiate better for, for people-driven solutions. And so consultations uh, before you even embark on process of negotiating those resources would be extremely useful. I like the fact that Oxfam is already doing it and I'm calling on many other ISOs to actually participate in the same so that you know what local NGOs need, you know what your partners need. By the time you're going to negotiate, you know exactly what they need funding for. And you can tell the funder that we are not going to accept resources for you know, one thing or the other. To local organizations, seek to promote a people-driven agenda. I keep insisting. Seek to promote a people-driven agenda. Make sure that you're promoting solutions by the communities that you're working with. If they are not able to think through solutions, work with them to think through those solutions. Um, prioritize what is important for them, not what is important for you. Um, ensure that, that the, the solutions that you're offering are actually positioning you for extra business so that you can be able to make some resources that are, that are not attached to any conditions. And but for this, my ask to you is to make yourself very marketable to or, or position yourself for, for, for technical support for, for, for business and everything. My organization is providing a lot of technical support for organizations that want to reach out to youth in the continent. We are providing technical support for strategic um, planning or strategic interventions for young people. And it's helping us get some funding that is not attached to any conditions. And I think that's something that most of these organizations should do. As John has said, push back, negotiate, ensure that you understand the strength of your initiative before you go and meet a development partner or you go and meet a donor for the same. The last one, very last one, is accountability. After you have accessed these resources, whether it's going to be from crowdfunding, whether it's going to be from a development partner, whether it's going to be from a rogue donor who has refused to accept the charter uh, for change, what then do you do with these funds? Are you also engaging in corruption? Are you also behaving the same way or in the same way that we are trying to convince governments and other actors to change from? Let us be accountable about our resources. Let us commit ourselves to growth so that you shall not be called a local NGO for too long. At some point, you also need to grow and create room for other enterprises to grow. Thank you. I think just to add to, to what they, they said, um, my specific ask to civil society organizations and of course, I recognize that we've come a long way, especially pre-COVID, really having some of these conversations with CSOs was a bit difficult. But I think during the pandemic, a lot of the good things as well that have come out of it, you know, in terms of people recognizing that, that this digital space really is important and allowing us to, to work with you, some of the things that you've talked about. And so, yeah, feel free to, to reach out to us. We are actually looking for CSOs to support um, across the continent and to move some of those ideas that you've talked about and together um, come up with human-centered uh, solutions um, for the continent. Because like I said, we believe one technology can solve a lot of the challenges we face 
and we can be able to come up with the solutions ourselves. Thank you very much, Stella and uh, team. Uh, it's been a very good conversation. My challenge to you is I think it would be nice to take over, to take forward some of these conversations. It will be interesting that in the next conversation in, the, in a few months, that we're practically seeing examples of how we are redesigning the whole things from, from, from bottom up, uh, as opposed to complaining that the table and the chair are broken. Even if you get a chair at the table, it's already broken and it still needs to be fixed. So I think it would be good to, to see what innovation comes up from the conversations between ICT and how that helps to, to, to redefine the new powers that we have in the sector. Thank you very much, everyone online. Thank you so much, John and Stella and Tim for this thought-provoking um, discussion. I'm sure that some of us have a lot to think about now. You can find links to more information and resources on this topic in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to us.